Let's pray. We'll ask God for his help. <clears throat> our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that this evening we'll be able to rightly understand your word so that we can, uh, so that we can think and act in ways that are um, pleasing to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. In the last couple of centuries, our society has approached this topic of homosexuality in a couple of ways. First, for many, many years, homosexuality was considered to be wrong. It was considered to be a sickness, a medical issue, and it was considered to be a crime, a legal issue. And under both ways of thinking, uh, people who were caught in in homosexual activity were treated in quite draconian ways. Under the medical model, they were forced to undergo cures. Uh, These included uh, enforced hormone therapy as well as chemical castration. I don't know if anybody's seen the the movie The Imitation Game, but uh, uh, that that guy, of course, was subject to that kind of uh, medical treatment, so-called. Under the criminal model, people caught in homosexual activity were subject to fines and imprisonment and other punishments. Meanwhile, in wider society, same-sex attracted people were subject to verbal abuse, to to physical violence, and all kinds of other nastiness. That's how things were. But more recently, there's been a radical change in the way that homosexuality is perceived. Uh, Homosexuality is now widely considered to be a valid form of human sexuality. It's no longer considered to be a sickness. On December the 15th, 1973, the American Psychiatric Association, that's the largest psychiatric organisation in the world, uh, issued a resolution stating that homosexuality is not a mental illness or sickness. This overruled previous resolutions stating that it was. Homosexuality is also no longer considered a crime. In 1994, the Commonwealth passed the Human Rights Sexual Conduct Act, Uh, which legalises sexual activity between consenting adults in private throughout Australia. The last man to be arrested was on the 14th of December 1984 in Hobart, Tasmania. Homosexuality is no longer considered to be a sickness or a crime. It is now considered to be a valid and normal expression of human sexuality. And uh, in the last few decades, there's been a concerted effort particularly in politics and in the arts and in media, to encourage full acceptance and even celebration of homosexuality and the homosexual lifestyle. In some contexts, it's now a crime to discriminate against homosexual people. And, of course, uh, recently legislation has been introduced to recognise same-sex marriage in Australia. It's been a massive cultural shift from homosexuality being considered a sickness and a crime to it now being considered normal and even celebrated all in the space of half a century. Of course, as Christians, we are not immune to the prevailing views of our society and so among Christians and churches there's some confusion about this issue. We ask all kinds of questions like, is homosexuality a sickness? Should it be a crime? Should we accept it as normal? Should we celebrate homosexuality? What what should we think about homosexuality? How should we deal with same-sex attracted people? These are questions that we are wrestling with. And so today we're looking at this topic, this topic of homosexuality. 
As you can see from your outline there, there are two points to make. Uh, firstly, you can see them in the bold writing there. We're going to think about what the Bible says about homosexuality. We're going to look at the story of the Bible and what it says about homosexuality. And then we're going to think, you can see it right at the end there, about how Christians should relate to same-sex attracted people. So, point one, what the Bible says about homosexuality. Point two, how Christians should relate to same-sex attracted people. Can you see where we're going? Can you see what we're doing tonight? Okay. Uh, First point then, homosexuality and the Bible. Let's start at the beginning. Go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God creates people. He creates the male and female. And he gives them a job to do. Uh, The people have to, to fill and to rule the earth. That is God's mandate for humanity as he creates them. There on your outline from Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Humans are created, male and female, given the task to fill and rule the earth. And of course, this task of filling the earth can only happen through the male and the female having sexual intercourse and having children. And uh, in Genesis chapter 2, it's revealed that the context in which this is to happen is marriage. Uh, There on your outline. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. That is to help him in the task of filling and ruling the world. So the Lord God made a woman and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So here's the original created pattern. One man, one woman, united in marriage, and they have sex to fulfill God's plan. It's part of how humanity fills and rules the world. It's part of God's plan to have a people, to have a people of his own who are in his place, under his blessing and rule. Now, as we move through the Bible, humanity rebels against God. They lose their place in the Garden of Eden. But despite human sin, God's original plan continues. God chooses the line of Abraham. He promises that Abraham, Abraham's descendants will be God's people in his place, under his blessing. And he says to Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Note the continued emphasis on having children. As we continue, God's promises come to the people of Israel. The people of Israel are to be God's people uh, in his place, the promised land, under his blessing and rule. And to prepare them to be in his place and to prepare them to be the bringer of God's blessing to the world and the the people for whom God's promises are received, God gives laws to Israel. He gives laws to Israel through Moses. 
and in the law of Moses, it's clear that homosexuality is contrary to the will of God. It runs counter to God's creation of male and female. It runs counter to God's plan to have a blessed people as the earth is filled and ruled. And it runs counter to God's promises that, that Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. There on your outline from Leviticus, speaking to men, it says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Uh, in fact, in the theocracy of Israel, where God's law was also the civil law, homosexuality was a crime punishable by death. On your outline, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable, they are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Okay, so can you see the situation in the Old Testament? People are created to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the world. Uh, God has promised that he'll have a people as numerous as the stars in the sky. Uh, that requires people to have sex and to have children within marriage. And homosexuality runs counter to God's creation. It runs counter to God's plan. It, it runs counter to God's promises. But now as we come into the New Testament, everything changes. Everything changes because in the New Testament, God's command to fill and to rule the earth is fulfilled. God's command to fill and to rule the earth is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the man who rules the earth. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. And so the creation command to fill and to rule the earth has been fulfilled. Jesus is now Lord of the earth. And, and so fulfilling God's purposes on earth is no longer a matter of having children in the line of Abraham. No, no, no. Now, now it's a question of making disciples. The way that we fill the earth and rule the earth now is to bring everyone under the rule of King Jesus. That is how God will have his people in his place under his blessing and rule. There on your outline from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus came to his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Can you see how everything's different in the New Testament? Jesus is now the ruler of the world, the fulfiller of what Adam was made for, the fulfiller of the promises to Abraham. The task is now to bring people under the rule of Jesus. That's how God will have his people in his place under his blessing and rule. And that means, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, that singleness is now a viable option for God's people. In fact, in this new order, singleness has some advantages. It gives opportunities to make disciples that are not available to married people. But that does not mean that marriage and having children is finished now in the New Testament era. No, no. Now, Jesus, he reaffirms heterosexual marriage as being God's plan and he reaffirms the, the, the sanctity of marriage, that it shouldn't be broken up by people because God has put husband and wife together. They're on your outline. Uh, haven't you read, Jesus replied, 
that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The task has changed. But marriage is still affirmed. And sex within marriage is still affirmed. It's still affirmed as part of raising godly offspring, as we'll see in a moment. But it's also affirmed as a way of maintaining sexual holiness. So there on your outline from 1 Corinthians... Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So marriage is reaffirmed in the New Testament. Sex in marriage is reaffirmed in the New Testament and raising children is reaffirmed in the New Testament as well, although it's now subsumed. It's subsumed. You don't just raise children to be God's people anymore. No, no, no. Raising children is now subsumed under the broader plan of making disciples. Did you hear that? Because I think it's very, very significant in our understanding of what we are trying to achieve as Christian parents. Raising children is now a subset of making disciples. Our task as Christian parents is to raise our children in the training and discipline of the Lord. In other words, to bring them under the Lordship of Jesus, to give them every opportunity to know Jesus as their Saviour and King. On your outline there, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Children are your first disciples. If you want to learn more of this, uh, Tony Payne's book, uh, Fatherhood, is an excellent, excellent book on this topic. So, Jesus is ruler of this world, the fulfiller of our created purpose. The task now is to make disciples, bring people under the lordship of Jesus. That means singleness is now a valid option. But it does not mean that homosexuality is now a viable option. In the New Testament, the Old Testament prohibition on homosexuality is continued. In the book of Romans, uh, the book of Romans deals with the issue of homosexuality. uh, And it's said to be, a few things are said about it, it's said to be uh, contrary to nature, that is, um, contrary to the way that we are made. It's also said to be sinful, and it's also said to be part of God's judgment on our sin as he hands us over to the sinful desires of our hearts. There on your outline. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. 
Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's contrary to nature. It's shameful, it's sinful, and it's part of God's judgment on us. Homosexuality. Uh, 1 Corinthians, homosexuality is spoken about again. And we're told, again, a few things. First, we're told that it is a sin that will keep us out of God's kingdom. But we're also told that um, there were Christians in Corinth, in the church, who had been homosexuals. And we're also told the brilliant news that Jesus can forgive us for the sin of homosexuality, as for many other sins as well on your outline. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the New Testament reaffirms heterosexual marriage as the only appropriate context for sex. It continues to condemn homosexuality as sinful. Uh, Homosexual practice is not a valid option for God's people. It is a distortion of God's original created pattern. It makes God angry uh, throughout the Bible. As you look at the whole thrust of the biblical narrative, you can see that sex is only meant for heterosexual marriage. The last thing to say, though, for those of us who struggle with our sexuality, the last thing to say is that the New Testament also pictures a future world, a world that is coming soon. This world will be a world without sin, a world in which we're transformed, a world where the lordship of Jesus is complete, and in that world, we're told, there won't be marriage anymore. There won't be our struggles with any of this stuff we're talking about, singleness or homosexuality or pornography or any of this sort of stuff. No, no, in that world, we're told, sexuality as we know it will be different. On your outline, Jesus is speaking, and he says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, They'll be like the angels in heaven. I say, bring it on. Okay. So there's point number one. The Bible and homosexuality. Uh, What does the Bible say? Homosexuality is contrary to our original created purpose. It's sinful. It's also part of God's judgment on our sin. It's the sort of sin that means we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Having said that, though, it is perfectly possible for a homosexual to become a Christian. This is a sin for which we can find forgiveness through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, that was point number one. That brings us to our second point, point number two, how Christians should relate to same-sex attracted people. If I I can start off just before I think about uh, us as Christians, if I can start off just by thinking at a societal level, uh, I am not convinced that either the medical model or the criminal model are the appropriate way to deal with homosexuality. I don't think our society has, has, has it right about homosexuality today, but I don't think we had it right 50 years ago either. From a medical perspective, we need to realise this. From what we can tell, the causes of homosexuality are a mixture of a number of complex factors, including nature and nurture. 
Uh, there may be some physical factors that predispose people towards same-sex attraction, certain genes or hormones or something like that. Uh, but there is also strong evidence of factors in a person's history and upbringing and family that also predispose them towards same-sex attraction. It's complex. Uh, writer John Bloom puts it this way. Our individual sexuality is shaped by a host of biological, personal, family and social cultural influences. Some factors we're born with, some may have been abusively forced upon us, and some we sinfully embrace and nourish. It's, it's simplistic to think of same-sex attraction as some kind of disease that can be cured. And, and it's draconian to force people to undergo some kind of medical treatment for it. Not convinced by the medical model. Uh, from a criminal perspective, we need to realise this. We're not living in a theocracy like Israel. Uh, God's Old Testament laws are not the laws of our country, nor should they be. Uh, God's Old Testament laws are fulfilled in Jesus. We live in a multicultural society, in a society of uh, a marketplace of ideas. And not only so, but the New Testament is clear that law doesn't change people's hearts. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation and for transformation. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for Jesus to return. Uh, laws, law has its place. A law may modify behaviour. And, of course, laws play a role in educating society and in setting societal norms. That's why it was well worth debating the issue of same-sex marriage when it was before us. And, of course, it's up to legislators what laws they make. Certain legislators may argue that homosexuality creates some kind of harm for society and should be outlawed. That's, that's something that needs to be worked out legislatively and, and politically in different cultures and contexts. But the point for us as Christians is this. Law is not the way to change hearts. I'm not convinced that the medical or criminal models for dealing with homosexuality are appropriate. And certainly, certainly, subjecting same-sex attracted people to verbal abuse or to physical violence is completely inappropriate for us as Christians or for anybody else. I think we should be glad that society's approach to homosexuality is no longer what it was. But that doesn't mean we've got it right today, either. Uh, it is clear from the Bible that homosexuality is contrary to God's will. Uh, the idea current in our society that homosexuality is a valid expression of human sexuality is, is, is just wrong, according to the Bible. According to the Bible, homosexual behaviour is sinful. So, we come at last to the question, point number two. How should we, as Christians deal with same-sex attracted people? How should we as Christians relate to same-sex attracted people? Friends, do you know what? I reckon the answer is simple. We should deal with same-sex attracted people the same way we deal with every other kind of sinner. We need to welcome and love same-sex attracted people and we need to call on them to repent of their sin and trust and obey Jesus. Welcome and love same-sex attracted people and call on them to repent from their sin, not just their homosexual behaviour, repent, repent from all their sin, 
and, and trust and obey Jesus. Let's think about those in turn. First, we should welcome and love same-sex attracted people. Same-sex attracted people who are Christians should be fully integrated into the life of our church. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that the church in Corinth had members who had been involved in homosexuality and the Apostle Paul was perfectly clear. They, like every other sinner in the church who was relying on Jesus, had been washed clean from their sin. They'd been set apart for God as his special people. They'd been justified before God through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus alone. Same-sex attracted people who trust in Jesus are just as saved as any other sinner. And hear this. Same-sex attracted people who fall and fail and slip back into homosexual behaviour and who still repent and still trust in Jesus are just as saved as any other sinner who falls and fails and goes back into their sin and still repents and puts their trust in Jesus. Writer Jackie Hill Perry says it this way, whether married or single, Christians who experience same-sex temptations are not less than Christian because they do. If anything, they may be the kind Jesus empathises with more deeply. They are the folks who Christ summoned to come to his throne of grace for help in their time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. In terms of homosexual non-Christians who come to our church, again, we should welcome them like anyone else. We should want them to be here with us. This is the best place for a same-sex attracted person to be, the same as it is for any other sinner, because it is here that we learn the great news that Jesus died and rose again to wash us clean from all sin. Here is the place of salvation for sinners, and so we should welcome and love same-sex attracted people. But friends, we should also call on same-sex attracted people to repent from their sin and trust and obey Jesus, uh, the same as we should do with any other sinner. Uh, we do same-sex attracted people no favours by telling them the lie that homosexual practice is okay. The Bible is clear. It's not okay. Homosexuality is the kind of behaviour that means you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We must not be deceived about this. And so nothing could be less loving to a same-sex attracted person than to, than to make them think that homosexual behaviour is okay so that they continue unrepentant in sin and end up in hell. Nothing could be less loving. No, friends, we need to call on same-sex attracted people to flee from sexual immorality, to flee from homosexual practice, as we read in 1 Corinthians 6, to turn away from this sin, to find forgiveness and salvation in Jesus, and then, along with every other Christian, we should encourage same-sex same attracted people to struggle and to seek in the power of God's Holy Spirit to live a life of either celibacy or faithful heterosexual monogamy. How should Christians relate to same-sex attracted people? The same as we do with everyone else. We need to welcome and love them and call upon them to repent from sin and trust and obey Jesus. Friends, can I finish by saying this? Uh, we have numerous people 
in our church who experience same-sex attraction. As far as I'm aware, uh, all of them acknowledge that homosexual practice is sinful, and so all of them struggle with, with greater or lesser success with celibacy, or else they strive to be faithful in their heterosexual marriage. Can I say to you, if that is you, you are entirely welcome at Chatswood Presbyterian Church. We love that you are here. We want you to be here, and we want to walk with you as you, like all of us, all of us sinners, seek to turn from sin and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's pray, and then there's an opportunity to ask questions. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the magnificent salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that his life, death and resurrection alone is enough to forgive us and cleanse us and sanctify us and justify us from all sin. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us as Christians and as a church to recognise that we are nothing other than saved sinners. And so we pray that in our relationships with each other we might be humble and gentle and loving and yet clear in our call for the need to repent and to put our trust in Jesus. Give us wisdom, give us grace, give us strength by your spirit to live appropriately. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.